In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. What's happening, Sky? Not much is happening, just uh, I've got about a week and a half to finish um, final papers that I just oh. started on yesterday, so, you know, living the, the life. Oh my gosh. I mean, well, let's make this quick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to. This is like actually, it's stuff I want to do. Finals are just stressful and terrible. So, this is good. Oh, you're going to do great. Uh, good luck. I with hope everything so. There's doing. one that I just still have no idea what I'm going to say. <laughs> but I know what I'm going to say in this. So, should we start? Yeah, let's jump into it. We are doing, as per usual, in the ninth episode of the season, our couples episode. Today, we are talking about the wood finds. The lady that I really dug into is number 2680, Anna Woodfine. My sources are her inmate file, newspapers.com, IDS articles, Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com records, wallaceid.fun, wallacehistory.wordpress.com, an article titled A Brief History of Wallace ID by Sean Hyatt at SpokaneHistorical.org, Wallace Idaho's Proud History of Prostitution by Jennifer K. Bauer on Inland360.com, CDATribe-NSN.gov, Executive Orders of 1873 and 1889 with the Coeur d'Alene Tribe from webpages.uidaho.edu, Immigration Before 1965 on History.com, and some some references on um, Wikipedia. So I have Richard Woodfine, number 2679. My sources, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, the official website of the town of Torbay, Newfoundland, Canada, hearsay.ca, a University of Idaho special collections manuscript catalog interpretation of the Hercules Mining Company, and just a couple little Wikipedia articles on the Big Burn and the town of Wallace and Mulan. Anna was born on October 4th, 1880 in Forsa, which is a community in Helsingland, Gelveborg County, Sweden. Now, Helsingland is a historical province in central eastern Sweden. It's about 175 miles north of Stockholm. Her parents were Ola or Olaus Scott and Kirsten Ohl's daughter. And as far as I could tell, she had two siblings, an older sister named Alma Gustava, born in February 1879, and a younger sister, Augusta Olas, born in 1882. I should perhaps make the caveat that her early life records are in Swedish. Guess who does not read Swedish? It's me. So um, <laughs> hope I'm pretty sure uh, it actually took me a really long time because Scott is not spelled S-C-O-T-T. It's spelled S-K-O-T-T. It actually took me a really long time to even find her uh, under that name. So um, 
this is, you know, all the Swedish records as far as I can tell. Um, so her father, Ola or Olas, died in March 1891. Um, he was 42. Anna was just 10 years old, and I don't know why he died uh, so young. Um, I couldn't find his death records, and I have a feeling even if I had, they would have been in Swedish. Uh, so I don't know if I would have... <laughs> would have helped. She attended school until the eighth grade in Sweden, and she said that she grew up in religion. Um, Now, historically, and really even in modern times, the most common church to be a part of um, in Sweden is the Lutheran Church of Sweden, and actually up until 2000, this was the official state religion. Um, On our intake form, it says she was a practicing member of the Church of England, um, but I don't imagine that the Church of England would have had a real toehold in Sweden, so that's probably something she picked up once she was in the United States. Then her mother, Kirsten Scott, died um, in November 1900. Uh, Kirsten was 58, Anna was 20 years old. So one of the the records I found actually listed Anna as an adult, and so for a while she worked as what is called in Swedish, and I'm absolutely going to butcher this pronunciation, so my apologies to anyone who actually knows Swedish, but she worked as a fabrik sarbetere, which uh, in Swedish just sort of means a factory worker. I don't really know more details on like what kind of factory it was, um, what she did there, um, but on her emigration records, so her records from Sweden, that is what her job uh, is listed as. Uh, In 1905, her younger sister, Augusta, emigrated from Sweden to Bellingham, Washington by way of England. Um, I'm not really sure why she emigrated or if she emigrated for any particular reason. And so Anna decided to follow in her sister's footsteps, and Anna emigrated to the United States in 1907, and she entered Bellingham, Washington to be with Augusta. Now, 1907 was actually a peak year for immigration into the U.S. 1.3 million people legally immigrated and Anna was one of them and of course that doesn't count those people who uh, it didn't happen a lot especially because so many people were coming from Europe Um, I think it's a little bit harder to sneak into the United States I don't want to say sneak but cross borders when you are coming across an ocean but that's just the amount of people who legally entered and so to give you an idea of you know U.S. immigration at the time this is really the height of immigration into the U.S. So between 1880 and 1920, of which Anna is basically smack dab in the middle, nearly 20 million immigrants entered the United States. And so just a little bit of historical background, because again, this is what I enjoy. To try to stem the tide of massive amounts of immigrants, by 1920, Congress would enact immigration quotas, limiting immigration to just 2% of the total number of people of each nationality listed in the 1890 census, which is not very, very many, really, for most nationalities. And these quotas, along with the Immigration Acts of 1882, limited Western European immigration and all but essentially banned Asian immigration, especially from China. China and the Chinese people were some of the first to essentially be excluded from uh, citizenship in the United States based on their skin color. So Augusta Anna's sister married in 1909, and likely soon after, I'm not totally sure when, at least by 1911, Anna moved to Idaho, likely to Wallace, where she met, probably, probably met a man named Richard Woodfine. And so I will turn over to Anthony for Richard's backstory. Richard Woodfine was born on February 23rd, 1888 in Torbay, Newfoundland in Canada. Torbay is a coastal city just north of the capital of Newfoundland, which is St. John's. So Richard was living right on the coastline in one of these eastern tips of Canada, jetting out into the Atlantic Ocean. So English fisheries developed in that area in the 1500s, which was a major industry in St. John in that area. But visitors can actually take these self-guided audio tours now of this area with this really cool program called Hearsay in which locals and local historians have recorded little audio snippets throughout the town telling these stories, and they're marked by these little speech bubbles that are placed on light posts and on street corners. So you can pop up this website, hearsay.ca, and find the street corner and you know click on the correct thing and listen to this little oral history. So it's something that, while I was researching this, I like listened to a bunch of these little oral history snippets and thought, wow, this is something they... Idaho State Historical Society, maybe you want to jump into, or at least we could do something like this at the old pen. That would be 
So cool. So keep your ears tuned for that. Maybe uh, that'll be something I work on here in the near future. Anyways, Richard is living in this area, Torbay, and he's the son of William and Anastasia Codner Woodfine. He had an older half-brother named William and older brother Robert, younger brother William also, and a younger sister named Martha. And I don't know much about his childhood, but it appears he was pretty well trained in carpentry and shoemaking, skills that he would use after crossing the border in the United States. And then he would also learn how to mine. And now I found Richard in a border crossing manifest from the port of Vancouver, British Columbia, when he was 23 years old. He listed his occupation as hard rock miner and listed that his sister was living in Wallace, Idaho, and he planned on staying there with her. So we learn a lot about Richard from his later letters to the parole board. So a lot of this information I only know after he was incarcerated. So after he arrived in northern Idaho, he lived in the Coeur d'Alene district and told the parole board that he had worked for the Day Brothers, working in the mines they controlled. Now, Harry and Jerry Day were the heads of the Federal Mining Company in Shoshone County and owned many gold and silver mining operations around Wallace. Older brother Harry Day had been a bookkeeper and clerk working in his father's general store in Wardner, Idaho, when he went prospecting in August of 1889 on a claim between Burke and Murray, Idaho, which resulted in the discovery of the Hercules Mine. Now, over the next decade, the Hercules and nearby Firefly mines would actually prove to be one of the most valuable collections of silver and lead in northern Idaho. By 1903, they were bringing in $40,000 a month. In the 1900s, the Day Brothers actually decided to consolidate their wealth by purchasing their own smelters in Shoshone County to melt down and separate the raw ore and produce these pure bricks, essentially cutting out their middlemen. And it was extremely successful. So the brothers, they would actually die in the early 1940s and leave behind their manuscripts to the University of Idaho, which I used to kind of understand the rise of the Hercules mine. And as we've kind of spoken about this, mining was a major industry and it caused a, a huge influx of foreign workers hoping to strike it big in this industry. There was plenty of work for Richard to keep him busy, but he still happened to find some love. He and Anna Scott, who was eight years older than him, they were actually married on December 23, 1914 in Spokane, Washington. And according to the Spokesman Review in Spokane, they were living in Burke, Idaho, about seven miles northeast of Wallace. This is actually now a ghost town you can visit, but at this time it was actually the bustling mining community the home of the Day Brothers Hercules Silver Mine, which gives us a good idea of where Richard was working in 1914 when they married. And I found a 1917 Army registration card in which Richard specified that he was an alien in the country, so he hadn't received his naturalized citizenship yet. And he worked in Milan, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene, and noted on the line that asks, Do you claim exemption from draft? specify the grounds and Richard wrote he was the sole support of his wife. Now on the back side of this card it notes that he was medium height, he was stout, and he had a broken finger at that point. Wallace actually is for being such a small town has so much interesting history and uh, so we'll just get into a little bit today and then um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some mining in Wallace next week. Wallace is in the very north of the state of Idaho. It's on the east side of the Panhandle, and it's about 50 miles southeast of Coeur d'Alene, less than 10 miles from the Montana border, and about 150 miles south of the Canadian border. Before European settlers, the area was home mostly to the Coeur d'Alene tribes, but nearby tribes likely moved in and out of the area for trade and other intertribal relations, including the Kalispell, the Kootenai, the Palouse, the Flathead, and the Pend d'Oreille. Now, unlike Plains tribes, Coeur d'Alene and neighboring tribes were not nomadic, and so they had more permanent settlements all over the area. They called themselves a name in their ancient language, which means the discovered people or those who are found here. The tribe's aboriginal territory spanned more than 5 million acres of what now makes up Idaho, Washington, and Montana. 
Now, the name Coraline was actually given to them in the 18th or 19th century by French trappers and traders who found them particularly skilled at trading. Now, the name Coraline is French for heart of the all, A-W-L. And for those who don't know, including me, um, an awl is a tool used for poking holes in leather and wood. So the nickname sort of refers to the sharpness of the trading skills exhibited by tribal members in their dealings with visitors. One Frenchman actually described members of the tribe as the greatest traders in the world. So the tribe was removed to the current Coeur d'Alene Reservation with executive orders in 1873 and 1899. The reservation currently sits on 345,000 acres, which include the Coeur d'Alene and St. Joe's Rivers and Lake Coeur d'Alene itself. Now, the town of Wallace was founded in 1884 when Colonel William Ross Wallace, who is a decorated Civil War veteran from Kentucky, purchased 80 acres of land and built his cabin in the area. Now, rumor has it that Wallace bought the land that he built his cabin on using Sioux script, which is a it was a form of currency that was later declared invalid. Another source I found said that the cash that he used to buy the area was actually counterfeit. So kind of regardless of any of these rumors, there were sort of disputes over the property for years. Like other settlers in early Idaho, people who moved to Wallace had been drawn to the rich gold, silver, and mineral deposits in the area, and they're actually, that area has some nice agricultural land as well. Now, that same year that Colonel Wallace supposedly bought the land in 1884, the discovery of poor man and tiger silver loads, with those discoveries, the town actually began to boom. And so with other loads that sort of were found in the area, it all eventually formed one of the largest silver deposits in the United States. You know, with this, you know, boom, the railroad was soon connected to Wallace and the town just continued to grow. So in 1890, Wallace was a prosperous town with miners from all over the country and all over the world hoping to strike it rich. Now, on July 28, 1890, a fire broke out among the timber buildings of the city. Now, details given about the burn in local newspapers give contradictory statements. So here are um, some of the newspaper articles that I found. So this first one is from the Idaho Daily Statesman on July 29th, titled, Wallace Wiped Out. Quote, the latest advices from Wallace, Idaho, are to the effect that the town was almost a annihilated by yesterday's conflagration. Not a business house left. The loss amounts to $412 and only $18,000 insurance. The water supply of the town gave out in a short time after the fire started. The flames are still raging in the timber on the surrounding hills. A vigilance committee has been organized and shelter has been provided for the homeless. Not much of the resident portion burned." Um, This is from the Wood River Times on that same day. Quote, Wallace has been visited by fire and almost the entire town destroyed. The loss will reach half a million dollars and 1,000 people are homeless. End quote. This this next one is from the Lewiston Daily Teller on July 23rd. Quote, the loss occasioned by the Wallace fire is estimated to be $500,000. The water supply gave out and the entire city burned in an hour. The wants of the unfortunate people were quickly met. Wardner, Mullen, and Osborne, which are all uh, nearby towns, had carloads of supplies on the ground by daylight. Shacks and tents are going up everywhere over the burnt district, and a new and beautiful city will soon rise out of the ashes, end quote. So sort of regardless how much, because, you know, we've got 412,000, you know, maybe about half a million, that's a lot of money. But regardless, um, the city was then rebuilt with brick to try to prevent that, obviously, from happening again. Now, uh, as I said, there are several major labor strikes in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but they took place more specifically in Kellogg, so I'm going to cover them next episode. Wallace wasn't just known for mining and labor strikes, it was also well known for something else, prostitution, or what we would call today sex work. Though I was unable to get my hands on it, Wallace native and rhetoric, writing, and cultural studies PhD Heather Brandstetter wrote a book titled Selling Sex in the Silver Valley, A Business Doing Pleasure. And uh, the information I got about uh, prostitution or sex work in Wallace came from articles about her book. Now, Wallace had a very, like, work hard, play hard kind of attitude, so there was sort of a more permissive approach toward drinking, gambling, and uh, sort of decriminalized prostitution. So between 1884 and 1991, prostitution was technically illegal, but it actually openly flourished for several reasons. First, the economic benefits for the town were sort of pretty high um, because it brought in many people, uh, men 
and women alike in from out of town. Men usually as customers, women usually as workers, but it also actually kept local women safe, people argued, because it prevented rape. Men had a regulated place to relieve their desires and tensions. And then this quote is actually from Branstetter herself, quote, and the kids too, the kids were considered safe. Someone brought that point to my attention the other day. The women working in the brothels cultivated feelings around town that they were protecting the women, children, and families while providing a service to single unmarried men, and also married minors, though they didn't advertise that as much. They gave a lot of money to the community. Kids could always go up there to sell their fundraiser tickets for school. They gave a lot of money to the schools. They supported different things the town needed, a new cop car, paving the streets. It was always a good way to supplement the town revenue, end quote. So you can see there how lucrative this business is, that they can sort of supplement town revenue when needed. I really actually want to get my hands on this book because it sounds kind of incredible. And it looks like Dr. Branstetter did an incredible job at researching this and finding all of this information. Sex work also flourished because it was highly regulated and brothels and madams kept a strict code of conduct. And again, this is a quote from an interview with Branstetter, quote, They were very good about keeping a clean image. They advertised they had regular doctor's visits and there was a ritual of cleanliness involved in individual interactions. They cultivated what was almost a fetish for cleanliness. They'd wash the men before and after. A bubble bath was a very popular service. Everyone said they're very clean and well regulated. They check in with the sheriff's office and with the doctor. They're not hanging out in bars or on the streets, end quote. Now, Branstetter also discovered that the women who worked as prostitutes or sex workers were from out of town um, and that madams wouldn't allow local girls to participate, quote, even if they wanted to, end quote. And so when these girls came in from out of town, they actually had to go get background checks at the sheriff's office, which included getting their picture taken and being fingerprinted. So, you know, Branstetter said, quote, it was very unofficial, but it was official, end quote. Which I thought that was so interesting that, you know, this, I think this sort of ties back to like the protection of the people of Wallace, that like we are not going to, you know, quote unquote, lead your girls astray. Like they're not going to work in this, this uh, industry. We're going to bring in girls from elsewhere. I thought that was a really interesting find by Branstetter there. Prostitution was confined to the northeastern part of the town, and Madams and Wallace enjoyed unprecedented status as influential businesswomen, community leaders, and philanthropists. Now, there were five established brothels in town, and between 1940 and 1960, an average of 30 to 60 women came into town, I think it was per year, to work as a prostitute or sex worker. You know what I want to see? You remember that show that I would not shut up about several years ago? Actually, like a year ago, (laughs) Harlots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh I would love to see a show like that, except in Wallace, Idaho, because this sounds kind of really cool. Again, the fact that it was very open, that everyone knew it It wasn't even like a hidden secret. It was very out in the open, but they had very uh, legitimate ways of doing business and they were like really hoping to protect everyone, you know, both the workers and the people in the town. I think this would be so interesting. So maybe I'll uh, write a script and submit it somewhere. I won't because <laughs> I don't know how to do that. But anyway. <laughs> you know, what's what's super interesting. So I, I visited Wallace and there is the Oasis Bordello Museum, uh-huh. which is one of the former operating bordellos. And the women actually had to abandon it in 1988 as they heard that federal authorities were coming in. And so everything is kept exactly how it was when those women left Mm -hmm. in 1988. And you can spend $5 and actually tour the rooms. And you you get to kind of go inside, but you get to see all the leftover food and Mm. different objects left in each room. It was a fascinating thing. I got to actually tour it with my father-in-law, which is kind of a funny... (laughs) (laughs) Funny adventure to go on with my father-in-law. But anyone passing through there, check out the Oasis Bordello Museum. It's it's super fascinating. Yeah, I I actually have not yet been to Wallace. I really, really want to go. And I'm trying to convince uh, my best friend to take a road trip up there with me. So hopefully we'll do that soon. So, yeah. There's so much good stuff there. It looks just like a beautiful place. If you'd like to know more about the Idaho State Historical Society and other historical sites, please visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for Sky or I, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.
Am I correct in saying that like most of the town of Wallace is listed at uh, on the National Registry for Historic Places? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's there's some funny stories like being the center of the universe. Oh yeah, <laughs> I totally things, yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, Wallace is just one of the most fascinating places that we like maybe have in the state. Wallace, though, it was really just the wild, wild west. But in 1910, disaster struck. The Big Burn, or the Great Fire of 1910, was a devastating fire. It burned 3 million acres in northern Idaho, western Montana, eastern Washington, and southeast British Columbia. Many towns were just completely destroyed by the fire, and Wallace, a third of Wallace, was destroyed. At least a million dollars in damages done to that town. Billions of dollars worth of timber was destroyed, you know, and that's a huge industry for Idaho. The fire started on August 20th. After a super dry season, there wasn't a lot of snow, and so it was just waiting for a match to start. And at some point, there were already hundreds of fires going on in the surrounding areas. They basically kind of combined together into this super fire, and gale force winds spread it over millions of acres within two days. It was crazy. 87 people ended up dying, and it's considered one of the most destructive fires in our history in the United States, but not the deadliest. Just over 70 of those people that died in that fire were were actually firefighters. The president sent in soldiers to help quell the fire, but there was just nothing to do. It was just biggest fire. It was so out of control. It was a huge deal. I looked into the budgets in Wallace for different departments for April of 1918, about the time when Richard and Anna were living in this area, just to bring it back to them. The police department was making just over $4,500. The health department had $350 to work with. The city engineer had $250, but the fire department budget was $8,060. Double what the health department, what the police department were were spending on their budget. So it was extremely important that fire was managed and maintained to prevent another great fire of 1910. And there are s- several books. I highly recommend The Big Burn is, is a fantastic one. I actually listened to that as an audio book on the drive up to Wallace for our little adventure up in North Idaho a couple of years ago. <laughs> Highly recommend that. So check that out, Sky, before you take your trip. Okay, well, and if you want to know more, we we also covered the Big Burn in our first episode of the riot season, the 1910 riot. Yeah. So there's more information there as well. And then also, if you live in Boise, if you're going to visit Boise again and you haven't been, highly, highly, highly recommend the Big Burn exhibit at the Idaho State Museum. Like, it won awards. It's, like, top-notch exhibit and really you get a sense i mean i don't know if you can get a sense of the the massive scale of the this fire but highly recommend checking that out as well yeah so you know knowing this history uh the people of the town were understandably quite wary and maybe suspicious of any fires that happened throughout the town that sort of followed now we don't really know that much about their crime other than the fact that they quote willfully, maliciously, knowingly, and feloniously burning a certain building with intent to defraud the insurers thereof, or in other words, they set fire to their own house. Now, Anthony has some information on the insurance company that insured the building. Yeah, so there's a fellow named Herman J. Rossi, who is a prominent Wallace citizen. He was a notary public, he owned shares in several mines, and was the president of the East Caledonia Mines Company and the secretary of the Amazon Dixie Mining Company in the mid-19-aughts. He was the general agent for the Aetna Life Insurance Company and the Aetna Accident and Liability Company and would inspect any insurance policy request after fires occurred. So it's important to note that with the war in Europe, Americans had their own battles going on back at home with the IWW with the Wobblies, whom mining owners, insurance agents, authorities saw as direct enemies because they feared items would be destroyed and sabotaged. So 1918, 
happened to be this extremely dry year, and a state law was instated called the Fallon Law, in which, quote, from June 1st to October 1st, each year shall be known as the close season, during which time it shall be unlawful for any camper, farmer, logger, or other individual, firm, or corporation to set out or cause to be set out fires in slashing down or fallen timber or in timberlands or in the vicinity of grain fields for the purpose of clearing lands of brush, grass, or other inflammable material without first obtaining a permit in writing or print from the fire warden of the district and at no time shall any fire be set out when the wind is blowing to such an extent as to cause danger of the same getting beyond the control of the person setting out such fire or without sufficient help present to control the same and the same shall be watched by the person setting the fire until the same is out so essentially no willy-nilly fires no slashing fires it's too dry outside we are cutting off any fires that are going on and the penalty was a heavy fine and a sentence in jail and the person was actually subject to prosecution by the federal government if there was any large fire that occurred from any of those aforementioned fires now the prosecuting attorney em griffith wrote quote it is the duty of every loyal citizen especially at this time to cooperate with the officers in their effort to prevent fires, which would result in great loss of timber and other properties, the preservation of which is so extremely necessary to the successful prosecution of the war, end quote. So I started wondering, we have a Swedish woman and a guy from Northeast Canada. They are aliens at this point. And so I found several articles calling for citizens to help prevent any fires and to be on the lookout for any foreigners who might be attempting to sabotage our timber and grasslands, you know, as I said, which would ruin our food and shelter supply during the war effort. Regardless, it appears the wood finds attempted to make some money off of this and they burned a small portion of their house and received $75,000 in insurance. The Rathdrum Tribune from June 21, 1918 notes, quote, A fire at Wallace caused a loss of $75,000 Tuesday, practically covered by insurance. Incendiarism is suspected, end quote. And it doesn't list their names, but I believe that this was them and that Herman J. Rossi, who inspected all of these fires, was the inspector on the grounds and was supposed to dole out the $75,000, but he suspected. And I kind of wonder if them not being naturalized citizens yet, if that would have affected their treatment Mm -hmm. while he inspected this. Yes. So there's a lot of question here. (laughs) It is interesting, though, because, you know, the Canada at the time was part of Great Britain, who, of course, were allies. Mm -hmm. And Sweden just doesn't really ever get involved they're one they're not german uh, this is this is the time i believe during world war one when we're changing like sauerkraut to like i don't remember what we changed the name to but like hamburgers or like <laughs> freedom burgers or whatever like this is the time where like anything german was like out but it could also be that like do people know the difference between swedish and german you know what i mean like if you hear an accent it's just an accent Right. So yeah. The, yeah, that's a really interesting point. But hmm. yeah, and then that's just you know some speculation that right. they they were dealt a, a little bit harder hand because of their foreign nature mm-hmm. and it, during this time. And it could be the combination of the foreign nature and then the fact that like eight years ago we had our entire town destroyed or almost destroyed, and so you know the the combination of sort of both of those things led to sort of this harsher treatment. And, like, more suspicion. Right. There's no other newspaper articles that I could find at this time that reference any of uh-huh. this. Like, that's the part that, you know, is yeah. so, like, oh, are you kidding I me? I found it really interesting. I'm, like, 98% sure that the $75,000 insurance claim that they are mentioning is about the wood fines just because it's, like, the right at the right time period. Mm-hmm. But, oh, man, I... You know, I can't give it a 100% guarantee. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering if it's one of those things where it's like when, you know, a flasher runs on the field, uh, like a football game, they don't show it because it's like we don't want to encourage that behavior. I wonder if it's like that yeah. where it's like, well, we don't want to talk about this because then people will get ideas. Uh-huh. I wonder if it was that. 
I mean, we'll never know, but I wonder if that's something to it. Regardless, they both pled not guilty, mm-hmm. which, ah, and that comes on, uh, they are charged with arson, September 25th, 1918, mm-hmm. but they pled not guilty. By October 3rd, 1918, they're found guilty and sentenced to one to ten years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And uh, they entered on October 10th, 1918. That was actually six days after Anna's 38th birthday. So Anna's intake form, she is Anna Woodfine with Mrs. listed in parentheses from Shoshone County. Plea of not guilty, crime, arson, sentence one to ten years, age when received, 38 Born October 4th, 1880 in Helsingland, Sweden. Listed occupation as housewife. Height 5 foot 6. Light complexion. Weight 176 pounds. Dark blonde hair. Blue eyes. Listed as married. Neither her father or her mother were living. And again, her father died when she was 10. Her mother died when she was 20. And she left her parents' home, or I think more likely just Sweden in general, when she was 28. She had religious instruction growing up and attended Sunday school. She belonged to the Church of England. It says that she was raised in the Church of England, but again, I couldn't find any evidence that Sweden had any sort of, like, large population of the Church of England, but she for sure was part of it when she came in. She can read and write a little English, but she could definitely read and write in Swedish, Um, and she attended the eighth grade in Sweden. Her habits of life were listed as abstinent. Um, The name and address of her nearest relative um, was her sister, uh, Alma Gustava Sandstrom Corrego, which I could not find her uh, in the records. Once uh, Augusta and um, Anna move away, I couldn't First of all, one, it was Swedish. Two, I uh, just couldn't. I think there were too many married uh, names for me to try to find. And uh, Alma lived in Sweden. And then her sister, Augusta Matson, which was Augusta's married name, was in Everson, Washington. Any peculiarity in build and feature? They just wrote large, <laughs> which is not very nice. She's not that big. And, uh, and then uh, condition of teeth, poor. She had a bridge and one gold crown on her left lower molars. Um, her size of boot worn was seven and a half. Her property found on convict was just the clothing that was kept in the commissary. Her parents were born in Sweden. Um, her port of entry was actually Seattle, Washington, and she had lived in Idaho for seven years. So Richard Woodfine, number 2679. His alias was Dick. Crime, arson, sentence, 1 to 10 years. He was 30 years old, born February 23rd, 1888 in St. John's, Newfoundland. Height, 5 foot 7 and a quarter inch tall. He's 133 pounds. He had dark blonde hair. He had a light complexion, blue eyes, a blonde mustache. His legitimate occupation, he listed carpenter, miner, and shoemaker. His build was medium. Both his mother and father were still living. He left home at the age of 22 and had religious instruction, went to Sunday school, and was still a member of the Episcopal Church, which could explain Anna's conversion to that church. Had a third grade education and could read and write. He was abstinent. He didn't smoke or drink. He had no former imprisonment. He had good teeth. He entered the United States, he said, through Boston, which I could not find record of that, and had lived in Idaho for six years and had finally gained his first citizenship papers, but was making application for his second to become a fully naturalized citizen. So when Anna entered the old penitentiary, she joined just two other women at the time. Uh, One was Cora Dunn, who was in for obtaining money under false pretenses, and Dora Harville, who was in for rape, both of whom we will hopefully cover soon. And then while she was there, the trio were joined by two other inmates, Margaret Fields, who was in for grand larceny, and Frances Ernst, who was in for manslaughter. And Cora and Margaret were both released before Anna left, so meaning by the time uh, she was released, she there were only three people, three women in the women's ward. So even though they were kept in separate wards, it is likely that Anna and Richard had some access to each other, or at least were able to communicate between each other. And in July 1919, both Richard and Anna wrote a joint letter to the Board of Pardons. He wrote, Our house was only slightly damaged, and the insurance company is trying to take it away from us? 
We would like to regain our liberty so that we could save our home and would not have to face the world at our release homeless. At the time of our conviction, the jury recommended that my wife should receive a light sentence. Trusting that you, gentlemen, can see your way clear to give us favorable action. I assure you that my future life will be such that you will not have a cause to regret your action. Very truly yours, Richard Woodfine, Anna Woodfine. They wrote that letter and uh, their pardon was denied. And so after that, Anna, and probably with the help of her lawyer, I should say, because she could only uh, write a little bit of English, they wrote to some friends in Wallace and in Spokane in the hopes that their sort of their friends vouching on her behalf would help secure her release. So this first letter was received from Mr. and Mrs. Elisha Wilkins, who addressed the Board of Pardons on August 20th, 1919. Quote, Dear Sirs, we received a letter from J.R. Compton asking us to write you about Mrs. Anna Woodford. We are glad to write in her behalf. We have known her for about eight years, and we have been married 25 years, and in all that time we have not had a lady visiting us who commanded the respect at all times more than Anna did. We trusted her in all ways, and she made us many presents, through kindness of heart when she could not afford to, as before her marriage she worked hard for her money. We are sorry for her. We would be glad to have her visit us again." Then the next letter comes from a Mrs. Oscar Berg, who was, and this letter was addressed to Anna on September 2nd, 1919. And she opens with, quote, Dear Mrs. Wood Vine. So she doesn't even get her name right. <laughs> <laughs> I have received a letter from a Mr. J.R. Compton of Boise, Idaho, asking me to write you in regards to your pardon. I hope my letter will not come too late to do any good. I am awful sorry you are still at Boise. I have been thinking of you often, and I was sure you was out before now. And I hope and pray you won't have to stay much longer. I think you have been there long enough and paid a penalty for the mistakes you may have made. You don't know how my heart went out to you in sympathy when I seen you had to go. And Mrs. Woodvine, if you can feel like writing me a line and let me know how you and Mr. Woodvine are, I would be very glad to hear from you. And you may still call me your friend. And if you ever come to Spokane, I will be glad to see you and help you in any way I can. I know you are a good and worthy woman and everything will come out all right. Time heals all things. You will forget and be happy again. That is my sincere wish. Hoping and praying for an early pardon for you, I am, as ever, your friend. End quote. Ugh, I love that time heals all things. I know. Mama. You will forget, you will forget and, be and be happy, happy again. again. I know. And so because of both of these letters uh, were from August and September, and as the next Board of Pardons meeting was not until October, the letters were put on file. And actually right here, mm-hmm. Richard also wrote the board mm-hmm. again, and he revealed that, quote, This is the first time that my wife and I have come within the arms of the law. We wish that you consider our case. And he then reveals that they had lived in Coeur d'Alene for like 10 years, and he had worked for the Day Brothers. He says, quote, my wife and I always bore a good reputation, end quote. And he ends this letter by saying that they had planned to apply separately for the January board of next year. They had to start applying in January because Anna's, for sure, was uh, denied. Her application for parole mm-hmm. was denied in the October meeting. So, yeah, so in January 1920, application for pardon was continued until the next regular meeting of the board, um, especially as prosecuting attorney H.J. Hull sent a telegram to the warden saying, quote, do not care to oppose application for pardon of Mrs. Woodfine, but wish to protest against granting pardon to Mr. Woodfine, end quote. So finally, in March 1920, the parole board granted Anna parole effective May 10th if all conditions specified for the warden were met and her record was kept clear. May 10th, 1920, she must have kept all of the conditions specified. Her record was kept clear. She was released from prison to the custody of Mrs. Thomas Jolly to remain in Ada County until she was given permission by the prison board to move elsewhere. Now, originally, I actually didn't know who Mrs. Thomas Jolly was or who her connection to Anna, but I realized after actually listening to an old episode that Thomas Jolly was actually a member of the prison administration. Um, and so yeah. it probably was, she was probably sent to, I don't know if live with a family or live near the family so that Mrs. Jolly could maybe keep an eye on her. So that is, as far as I know, what happened. And the condition of her parole, including having to write the county sheriff once a month, abstained from alcohol, and she was not allowed to leave the county. So what happened to Richard, Anthony? Finally, Richard remained in the prison until September 1st, 1920. And the prison board finally granted him a parole. He was on parole until April 7th, 1921, when he was granted a final pardon. 
and he most likely returned to Wallace to find work, but uh, I couldn't find any specification on this on his file. So then, April 1921, so uh, about 11 months after she was given parole, the Secretary of State, Robert Jones, wrote the warden informing him that the pardon board granted Anna a full pardon as she had been on parole, quote, for over six months, end quote, which she actually had been on parole for nearly a year, and quote, reports having been regular and satisfactory, end quote. So it seems that after the couple's release, they actually moved to Oregon. And I really couldn't find too much of Anna for the next few years. Um, There is an article that I found in the Bend Bulletin from April 30th, 1924. And it was just kind of one of those like people about town articles that we find every once in a while. And basically she and Richard went to the home of Mr. and Mrs. H.T. Mickelson. So they have friends, you know, there's parties that they're going to and um, spending time with other couples. So it seems like, you know, their life is is sort of moving back on track. But sadly, on January 11th, 1925, Anna Marie Woodfine passed away at St. Charles Hospital in Bend, Oregon after a chronic illness for which she had recently undergone a serious operation. And I could not find any records that indicate what that chronic illness might have been. And so she would have only been about 45 years old at the time of her death. So very young, unfortunately. But again, it sounds like, you know, she got out of prison and and she just kind of moved on uh, with her life. And so that is that is commendable. So let me turn the rest of the time over to you. What happened to Richard after he got out and, and after Anna died? Richard seemed pretty clearly heartbroken. He continued living in Bend and actually appeared in a couple of 1920s newspaper articles transferring land with other locals. The next place I found him was in the 1930s census where he was living as a rumor in a boarding house in Klamath Falls and working as a carpenter in a sawmill and still single, you know, after about five years. Next thing I found him was in the 1940 census and here he had married a woman named Martha, who was 10 years his junior this time, and he lived with her family, with her parents, Mr. Gustav and Catherine Jornshu in Portland, Oregon. Now, Richard worked as an operator in a mill, and he and Martha actually had a child who was 10 years old. Her name was Kathleen. So it seems that sometime around 1930 that he must have met Martha after he had been part of that 1930 census. In September 1953, Richard was checked into the St. Vincent Hospital for an undisclosed major surgery. He remained in the hospital for a month and was released in October. Quote, Mr. Woodfind is very slowly regaining his strength, end quote. He would get through this, and on November 23, 1960, the Statesman Journal in Salem, Oregon, had a story that said, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Richard Woodfine celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary Saturday afternoon, end quote. And finally, at the age of 75, Richard was in Dallas, Texas, when he passed away on October 7, 1963. In his obituary, there's no mention of how he died, quote, A native of St. John's, Newfoundland, he worked as a mining foreman for about 12 years, mostly in Idaho, before coming to Oregon. He was a millwright and mill builder in several Oregon communities before coming here after working briefly in Valsett's Mill. Survivors include the widow, Mrs. Martha Woodfine, daughter Kathleen Burnside, and five grandchildren. Martha actually died on March 2nd, 1964, just under a year later of cancer. And that is the second half of Richard's life, essentially, without Anna. He just continued being a carpenter and a skilled craftsman, uh, it seems. Hmm. Was he in Dallas living or was he just like on a trip here? It appears that he was just visiting. So I I tried to see if, if there were any articles about his death but i couldn't find anything you know if he was hospitalized for something or what Mm. so i think it was kind of a a sudden death and and actually the obituaries all were back in oregon Mm. interesting i really i kind of really like them and i don't know if it's because they're 
crime was really, for the most part, didn't hurt anyone but themselves. But I, I think that their dynamic seems really interesting. Um, a lot of times when couples come into prison together, they don't stay together when they leave. <laughs> right. But, you know, they were together until her death. And, um, you know, he didn't marry for another five years. So, um, you know, they clearly must have loved each other to sort of have to go through all of that and stick together. And, you know, for her to be eight years is not a ton older, but it certainly is unusual for a woman to be that much older. And yeah, this is like, I just all the time wish that I had a time machine and I could just like go back and like see (laughs) how dynamics work to just be like, tell me what's happening here. Like, and this is just one of them that I would be really interested to know, like kind of what, you know, their life was like together. I was thinking of like the honor among thieves, like there's no honor among thieves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he could have, made her the the main cause of this whole defraud scheme you know knowing that the, oh they won't give her that much time but it seems like in all of his papers he's like okay keep me let her go mm-hmm. and that does that doesn't happen very mm-hmm. often like <laughs> give her some liberty because like she shouldn't be here and i think he kind of felt guilty about mm-hmm. having the blame land on her at all and you know, you don't see that very often, yeah. and that's kind of nice. And the fact that they stayed together after the incarceration, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that just is not a very common occurrence. Mm-hmm. I, li- I kind of like them. Yeah, yeah, I do too. <laughs> I mean, it's they, we don't have that much really on either of them, and, you know, we don't have much on their crime. And I'm fairly certain that Anna is one of the only women who are in for arson. So that's a yeah. that's a pretty rare crime for women. I think we might have at least one more. But I mean, she probably lived quite the life. Like she grew up in Sweden and came over to <laughs> to the United States and, you know, was put in prison. Um, but, you know, obviously loved her husband. And this is fun. A lovely break from finals. Yeah. <laughs> and a lovely break from like violent. Yeah. <laughs> horrible stories so and murders and suicide yeah Yeah. absolutely oh everyone love your spouse i guess yeah all right everybody do your own time do your own number don't go starting any fires anywhere (laughs) but do listen to billy joel's we didn't start the fire because that's a great song If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.